Good morning and welcome and a happy Easter out to you all. Uh, I'm Michael Dwyer and welcome back to TRSI and I'm joined this morning by my friend and colleague Gary. Gary, how are you doing? I'm chastened by this new dominance hierarchy you've established by doing the intro. And it's a, a shout out uh, to Tr- to Trudy there just to show you Trudy I am in fact the alpha dog and you can now see it it's all to see but now having done that and established my dogs <laughs> I'll hand it back to Gary who can tell you what we're going to do in the show today well that was a turnaround but it was a blissfully short turnaround we don't want to upset the customers too much so to open Michael we've talked before a lot about research standards in Ireland because obviously that's what people you know when they're listening of a Sunday or Monday morning that's really what they want to hear about methodological issues and relationships and potential conflicts of interests it's what the people crave michael like children crave to be back in the mines <laughs> we we covered a study um i wrote a a, a, a piece on its uh, methodology maybe a year ago at this stage michael um we discussed it on the show it was about the experience of non-religious teachers in Ireland. Yes. It was from an academic in Mary Mackey College, made these wide-ranging recommendations, ton of issues with it, stuff like interviewing people who said they were uh, atheists, but then who said that they were actually pagans. Like, just messy, messy. Of course, it was covered in the Irish Times without mentioning any of those issues. Yes. But I just wanted to remind people of it now, and I'll put a link to it below so you can see all the problems with it, because, you know, Michael, you always ask me, why do people not do these studies better? And I always say, because you don't need to do them better, because you're going to get all the uh, the great press coverage without doing it better. So why waste your time when only sad losers on the internet are going to actually look at it and go, oh, this is nonsense. Or maybe it's right, but you definitely can't, you know, back this up. Yeah, I can, but I can see that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an economic argument there, basic to say that you will, you would, you commit the amount of resources to something that you need to commit to do the job that it's doing, and if it's doing the job, why commit more resources to it? Well, yeah, there's definitely a market efficiency argument here, and I, I recognise that. But I wanted to bring it up now. Because there is an award called the John Coulihan Award. It's given out by a group called Scotans. And it's designed to recognise outstanding educational research that brought together professionals from both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that study has just won it. This study won the prize for outstanding research. I'm sorry. My surprise is it is being kind of backtracked by my... Out of hiccups, which is, I don't, maybe it's the surprises. Give me the hiccups. Do you know what this reminds me of, Gary? A weird moment where we were actually in mental sync and it never, we hadn't prepared it. And I genuinely didn't believe that you were talking about the same thing. You were talking about the greatest scandal of the week and oh, week of the Oscars. And I said, well, I don't know what you think, but the scandal I think is the fact that Dune won the, the Oscar for best sound. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the closest I've come since then to something making me think, are you fucking serious? Are you? Are you, what? As uh, my friends used to say 20 years ago, I'm sure they don't anymore, get out of that garden. This has won a prize for the... Okay, Gary, sorry. Explain to me why and why this is not a, a thing to be laughed at and to be ridiculed. Well, to be brutally honest, Michael, I think it might be because this award requires uh, researchers to come from both the South and the North. So there may be a very small pool of actual research that can win this. This may be a victory by default. 
Yeah. Um, or it could be that it said the right sorts of things. I mean, it gave these incredibly wide ranging recommendations to how we should change schools to make it fairer for non-religious people on the basis of, I think, 15 interviews. 15. Sorry, just no, no, hold on. Sorry, Gary. 15 interviews. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, 15 of which 14 were currently working as teachers and one had already left. That's a, that's a high standard. That's a, that's that's what you call a proper sample. That's oh yeah, I mean, you can see. I mean, in fairness, I mean, we can we can sit here on horrors on the ditch and sneer at these decent researchers trying to struggle out and get a nugget of the golden truth and help understanding in education and advance the cause. Fifteen, oh wow, fifteen. One of them, one of them had left education, and one of them wasn't an atheist or wasn't was actually religious, but just was pagan. It uh, the the Irish Times when they were writing about it didn't bother to mention how they found those 15 people would you like to guess michael was it that they asked somebody to find some of his friends from the non-religious atheist teachers club uh at the next meeting that's actually basically what they did yes they they sourced their people from a number of established humanist organizations and social identity uh, social network groups that's lovely. And it's nice that the, the folks are keeping together and, and socialising. You know, it's important to support each other, Gary. As I mentioned in my article, it doesn't tell, uh, it doesn't say which organisations they went to, but one would assume they include the Humanist Association of Ireland, which is interesting to note in the context of education, because in 2017, the Humanist Association of Ireland gave a donation to education equality who obviously lobby for secular education. Equality, Gary, is there a word, a more worked, more abused word in the English language these days than the word equality? To the extent that when you see the you see equality coming down the street, you want to go out and get your elephant gun and shoot it. Equity is, is, is doing a fair bit of work these days as well. Fairness in things that obviously aren't fair. But the important thing, why I bring up this donation, Michael, other than saying that they probably source people from an organization giving money to another organization who are, you know, specifically lobbying for the recommendations of this report, is that people started talking about that donation, Michael, other people, not me, certainly. And they started saying things like illegal and inappropriate. And, you know, education equality was very hesitant to to lean into that, Michael. Until Sippo ended up telling them that uh, if they didn't give back the money, they'd be prosecuted. And after that, Michael, the whole thing just fixed itself right up. <laughs> well, that's nice. It's nice to know that it fixed itself up, Gary. Oh, it did. So anyway, I just wanted to, you know, lean in, Michael, to really Irish research, particularly on, you know, where you're saying the right sort of thing. We're seeing, you know, in real time, the outcome of, of an efficient market hypothesis. These people are efficient users of the market. And they know they can produce things of shockingly low quality and uh, not just have it covered by the Irish Times, but get all of the accolades. Now, I don't know if this came with a cash payment, but I hope it did. And and, and, all, and medals and a statue that they can share. And some three months on my uh, mantelpiece, three months on yours, three months on his, three months on hers, you know? Something they can take photographs with with the grandchildren. It'd be lovely. Uh, maybe a repeating. The group that gave them the award uh, talked about, you know, the entire, the, the need for further change, Michael. Change of the right sort, which is what this report recommends. Amusingly enough, after I published my article, basically kicking this thing to pieces because someone needed to, Michael, I had, uh, should we say, a couple of uh, these researchers' peers reach out to me and thank me for doing so because the research was of such shockingly low quality. And you're doing pretty badly, if your peers start reaching out to people going, thanks for that. 
that needed to be shanked. Oh, that's not good. That really isn't good. Anyway, you've got the knife out again, sharpened it on the thing and stuck it in. There you go. I'm sure those poor, decent, hard-working researchers are delighted. I'm sure they're also utterly uh, utterly unaware of the fact that they're Stadler and Waldorf are on the radio talking about them. But anyway, go on. So speaking, as we are, Michael, of inappropriate and, and negative research, you want to talk about this modern-day book-burning akin to the Nazis. Into the Nazis. Again, actually, there's we could do a list of a small lexicon, Gary, of words that need to be given a rest. And... I remember reading, I don't know if it was true, but I did read it, uh, that there are um, certain pieces of music that there is, I think, a kind of a formal agreement in Hollywood are only used a certain number of times, uh, say, in film or something, because they have become so overused that they have be- they, they've lost their capacity to have the emotional impact of the shock. Things like, I don't know, uh, I imagine Carmina Burana. A box took hot and few in C air and a G string. Uh, Beethoven's Last Symphony, Alzheimer's Rocks, Arthustra, you know, the intro from Richard Strauss, that kind of thing. And there's, I, I think that maybe there's an argument that certain, some words need to go on a lexicon and just be left. And, and one of those words, or one of those analogies or metaphors would be Nazis. Because, of course, we have been burning books in Fingal, in Fingal, I think, isn't it? Or was it, it was in Fingal, possibly in Fingalis. There was a bunch of parents protesting outside a library, Gary. Now, I will admit that on the face of it, I'm not mad. I mean, protesting libraries and protesting books is not something that I'm immediately and automatically on board with. Well, and first thing, did you get a chance to look at any of the se- any any of the sections of the particular book that they were they were objecting to? Although actually, there was the I think actually more than one book that they had concerns. They and others had concerns with, but the the principal one, did you see, which was put on and recommended for use by the department and in the library, in the children's section. Uh, for young adults, 12 to 17, 12-year-olds now, Gary. Did you did you see any of the sections in it? So there seems to be a number of books that are being debated, and I bought or acquired copies of a number of them just because I was hearing just this massive back and forth between people on this. I just want to see what the books actually said, because that doesn't really seem to be coming up a lot. So yes, I, I've seen not all of them, because I think there's four or five that people are pointing at, and then there's a question of which ones are in libraries and which ones are labelled appropriately for children. But I, I did read uh, This Book is Gay, the uh, Juno Dawson one, um, Sex and Uncensored Guide. God, yeah, I have a general awareness of what's in them, yeah. Okay, we'll take with the Juno, and uh, Juno, my understanding, is a transgender man, is that right? At the time of publishing the book, no, they were just an effeminate I'm guessing from reading it, very camp gay man. But now, yes, transgender. Not trans. Okay. See again, they're 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 coming for us, Gary. They're coming for us all. They're taking us down one by one. It's the super macho types like me that'll last the longest. Anyway, so you know the thing about it is, and and this was my fund, my first reaction, and still not really because I'm more, I'm I'm not uninterested in the sort of the culture the culture wars element of it, but more the the politics of it just seemed to me weird. Guy, okay, this is the thing. It is perfectly possible for sometimes you know books just somebody says, oh that's a book you should put that on, or I I, I saw a review of that in the Times Educational Supplement or in the Guardian or in Slate Online or something, and it gets in. And you know what, Gary, the fact 
that nobody would admit to is that maybe nobody ever read the book, you know? A list was compiled from a list, which was compiled from a list. This got on the list, it arrived in the in the thing, and nobody had it, nobody, no librarian, nobody in the department, nobody actually read it at all. It was just something that happened in there, right? Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I can imagine perfectly well that that book actually never really was checked out. It, and because these things happen passively. Back in the old days, I remember a librarian saying to me that actually there were an awful lot of books in, at a time when we used to practice fairly draconian levels of censorship in Ireland. In a, there are a lot of books that used to get on the shelves in libraries that were that really, on the, in the basis of other experiences, could well have been or should well have been uh, censored or banned. But the thing was, when it was just a question of passively allowing them through, they would do it. The problem was when somebody would come into the library, take the book out, read it, and be horrified and shocked and outraged and launch an official complaint. Because then it would go through the process. And if you were going to keep the book, or on, either uncensored or on band, then you would actually have to make a positive saying, no, this book is not obscene or this book is not offensive to religious sensibilities. And at that point, you're actually making a positive statement and people didn't really want to be getting into the business of making positive statements. So they just said, okay, yeah, it's that's so much easier. So a lot of the time, stuff got through passively. And as long as nobody noticed it, it would just stay there. And I think it's, so it's possible in the same sort of reverse way, this thing, right? But I don't get Gary's. Living inside the 17-year-olds, but the 12-year-olds. It is obviously, just obviously and clearly, completely and wildly inappropriate reading for a 12-year-old child. And I don't understand our friends on the left not just saying, yeah, yeah, that's this is not appropriate. It's a perfectly appropriate book for an 18-year-old or 19-year-old. It's an adult book or whatever. Where this is perfectly fine for this author to write about their experience, blah, blah, blah. And it should be looked as an interesting story, a biography of a young gay man discovering sexuality, or whatever they want to say. But surely, it would, would it not have made more sense for them just to come out with their hands up and say, yeah, a mistake was made here. It just got through the net. It is not appropriate for that age group. It should be not be used. Would that not have made them look sensible? responsible, reasonable people. I, that, that's the thing is first, the first point that I want to make. It just struck me that the politics of this is just true. Because it is, even to the most liberal-minded of persons. I mean, I mean, not Paul Murphy, because we'll, we'll get onto Paul's tweets in a minute. But because Paul is more liberal on this than I, surprisingly. Do you not think it would just have been a sensible thing to say, yeah, lads, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not appropriate. Your problem there is you have two things. You have the politics of this and you have the, the presentation of it. So you have people protesting against it and then you have people saying that those protests are against the LGBT portion of the book. Now, when we send people down to talk to people, the general response we got from people was that they didn't really care about the LGBT element. They cared about the sexual element, which, you know, crossed over, but is different. So I think there was, once that presentation came out, or once people convinced themselves that these were people protesting against LGBT books, there was never going to be, we've made a mistake. That was just never going to happen. And now you find yourself in what I would say is the deeply uncomfortable position of people coming forward and saying, yes, but this book contains detailed instructions on how to give a blowjob. Should a 12-year-old be reading that? Even if it's perfectly like fine for an older child to read it, should a 12-year-old be reading it? And I've seen some, Michael, of our, um, should we say, various political representatives and people involved in these sort of things who really don't want to say yes to that question, but are just saying things about, you know, safe sex, Michael, but won't 
talk about any of the um, specific details of what's in some of the books. So I think it's gotten a bit awkward for them now. Okay, uh, allowing us, so second point, you want to do something, you want to press, you, you don't want to give in to these, oh, I mean, the implication was that these obviously are people of far right. They're bigots. They're, El- by the way, I mean, we've been hearing comments from certain people, which have been getting quite a bit of, I think, interesting pushback that there is no LGB without the T. And I'm, I'm getting the feeling that within the, you know, I use the word within inverted commas, the community, this notion that there's LG, no LGB without the T is starting to piss people off a little bit. You know, it, you know we, we've heard, we hear a lot about erasure and disappearance, and I've had guys say to me, no, no, I don't disappear. If the T goes away, I'm still here. I still exist. Even if the T goes off on its holidays, I'm still here. So... Uh, this whole thing, oh, it's, it's an attack on LGBT. I saw the interviews the group did, and I, I was, I tell you, Gary, I was again impressed, actually, with how articulate and reasonable the people were. And maybe that's a manifestation of my own kind of prejudice or bias against dark, the plain people of Ireland. But may, maybe it's the maybe it's a self-selecting group because people who are going to go out and protest are going to be of a certain kind or disposition. But I really was impressed. By the way, they articulate, and they seem to me to be perfectly ordinary, decent, respect, you know, liberal-minded people who had specific concerns, which were not actually specifically connected with the LGB bit. But they're saying it's book burning. Oh, it's book when patently, obviously, it is not book burning. It's not even censorship. It's saying that there are certain books that we're going to put age restrictions on because there are certain things which we think are age appropriate and which are not. And unless, do you not think that there's a, there's a kind of an odd an irony going on here that suddenly our friends on the left have turned into free speech purists? Hundred percenters, I was going to say, Michael. You know, as someone who has been very vocal on their support for free speech, there's always those you know edge cases where people want you to spend your time talking about. Because if you start saying things like, "Yeah, neo Nazis should be able to publish books," the public tends to look at you and go, "Well, I don't like that." And on a similar vein, if I was going to pick one topic on which I would, you know, pin my dedication to free speech, the books which may contain inappropriate sexual content for twelve-year-olds would not be the hill I wanted to die on particularly if I was an LGBT group. I would have thought I mean and I am fairly fairly uh, out on the spectrum when it comes to the free speech thing. I'm a I'm not a hundred percent free speech purist. I mean, I'm not a libertarian, but I'm fairly out there. But on this one, I thought it's fairly reasonable to say that they're going to you're going to apply age restrictions, and there's going to be a question of appropriateness. Now, there's also other elements, particularly when you're when you're dealing with children, that there should be transparency. That uh, there should be aware uh, parents should be aware, and parents get to make choices about the kinds of things that their children do. They're ethical. They're uh, moral issues involved here about the moral education and ethical education of their children what they want them to think or believe about things and don't but also just simple i mean if you want more health issues regarding well also by the way i don't think that we should concede that even if you're 18 year old that you should read that book and take that the advice that that book has and the modeling that that book has for relationships as being a good thing the whole idea of whether or not it's a good book nobody even discussed that I have to think actually that one of the points that has been missed about it is that this is actually not a good book. That actually would be my view, having read at least I presume we're talking about this book is gay, um, which seems to be the most prominent one, which is odd because it's actually one of the least kind of problematic 
Um, some of the other books are, are substantially worse, but it's very badly written, and it's written in the sort of tone that you get with adults who aren't quite sure how children talk anymore, desperately want to be kind of hip, and it gets very grating. It's just actually not very good at all. But it there are two sections I think people have, have taken issue with, particularly in that book. One is the detailed description of how to give a blowjob, and the second is um, a section on how to use... Uh, dating apps for casual sex which again neither of which I find shocking as an adult but I think a parent could legitimately go you know what I don't want my 12 year old learning how to use a dating app for casual sex that just seems like a bad idea it does note in the book Michael by the way that the the minimum age for certain apps is you know 18 I'm not sure if that's a, a what children will do with that um, what I find particularly interesting about this, Michael, is that these things were there for a while. There was a thing called the Rainbow Reads. It was a children, uh, it was a reading list. After GRIP started reporting on this last year, and we started sending, uh, reaching out to the NCAA, who are the National Curriculum Association of Ireland, and who are the people who were recommending these books and putting them on uh, things for teachers, they actually amended their website to remove entirely Rainbow Reads from their recommended list, and also started adding at notes to the other things, the other books that they had published, saying that these may not be um, suitable for um, particular children, that the the books in this recommendation are not just for, you know, junior search, which is what they've been initially listed for, but now, you know, you note the recommended age range and ensure it's it's suitable for your class. And that also seems, Rainbow Reads reading list also seems to have been removed from Children's Books Ireland. So, there is this little bit of, okay, people started complaining about, and then this stuff just started either disappearing or having age warnings put on it. And if it wasn't inappropriate, why is that happening? And if it was inappropriate, why was it there to begin with? Yeah, well, as I said before, I, I think why it was there. And for me, I just, some of it I'm sure they would have read. I, I'm perfectly willing to believe some of it just landed there because of just a series of passive errors on, on people's part. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they, all of these things were read and vetted and approved. And then later on, they, when they discovered that the sweaty masses were reading them and getting and they, oh God, we we, did, we thought the kids would read them, we didn't think the parents would, then it all became a, a different discussion and they disappeared. But yeah, it's, they're right. if, they were, if, they're, if they're not inappropriate, then why would they take it off? This whole thing, this Nazi, it's book burning. It's just so, again, my point is political, just not political observation more than a comment on the, on the substance of it. Is that not just really stupid, bad politics? wildly overstating the thing when it's obvious nobody there are no pictures of anybody burning books it's just a question about age appropriateness and you just look silly when you start saying stuff like that as long as the media is in lockstep saying that these people are just anti-LGBT that they're just prudes, they're bigots, you're fine. Your problem is, once there's the smallest crack in that wall, and you get a chance to actually talk to the parents, and media starts talking to them, well, then they get to say things like, well, we actually don't care about that, it's, it's just the sexual content, and then you're going to be questioned on the sexual content. And if you're an LGBT group, I don't think you want to be questioned on, you know, what about this book that has these things in it? Is this appropriate for a 12-year-old? Because you're either going to have to stick to your guns, and that's not going to look great, or you're going to have to back off, and then you look like a fool. Also, give you know, the history of LGBT groups, just organisations, I would just be very careful about this um, topic 
just overall, it's not a good area to get into. This is a, this is this is an area with ten foot poles involved, you know, and not and supping with supping with the devil and long spoons and stuff. Here's a there's a tweet going around say that um, when somebody when they were growing up, some girls were having sex at thirteen. Maybe having an op- a more open dialogue would have been more productive than burning books in libraries. Society is about 20 years too late in saving children's innocence. Porn fills that gap. Okay, first point, no, nobody's burning books. This is this is an argument I find actually kind of amazing to see. The amount of people saying, it's not they're not defending the content of the book because they don't want to. Instead, they're saying, well, society has become so pornified that this is pointless to stop children from accessing these things. And it seems, Michael, that... I thought porn was just one of those things that we were all just accepting was good. So this is an interesting yes. development in that. But also it seems like a sort of just a, we've totally given up. Like, well, it would be difficult to stop children from getting this. So obviously there's no point trying, which is just an odd position. So I think, Gary, I think it's more than that. What they're saying is that since we are so completely pornified as a society and children are so pornified, so sexual. And by the way, I'm very, I don't, I mean, just as a, a reverse part of that argument, when that particular person was third, was, was growing up, uh, we were not pornified and 13 year olds were having sex. And I don't, I think it might have been more useful to say to 13 year olds don't have sex rather than tell them how to have sex successfully. But leaving that aside, what they're saying is that we, what we have to do is do everything that porn does, but just in a different context. And everything that you, every, it seems to be the implication, at least on the face of it, is that anything that somebody who can access in porn, any kind of activity, what you have to do is then have a book that will talk about how to do that in a nice, clean, hygienic, safe and loving way. Rather than just say to people, well, yeah, listen, you're going to see a lot of stuff in porn for, that's all nonsense. That's rubbish. That's not what sex is. That's not what relationships is. That's not. And I would make the. I mean, I will. I will concede that there is rather. With you were saying that you know, porn is this. We are sex positive. Down porn is a good thing. I don't know if I, I mentioned this on air before, but I remember hearing uh, from a, a, a HSE psychiatrist at the at a conference. We were talking. She was talking to a GP about a girl that came in. And who carried all of the signs, physical signs of having been violently assaulted and raped. And it transpired that she had not been, but rather that she was 15, her boyfriend was 15, and they had had sex. And, but they had said on the basis of what they had seen on porn, they had, this was the, the outcome. And I found that horrifying, shocking that this was, this level, I mean, the, the level of cultural influence that porn is having. Because I came up in a time when you just, porn was something like a magazine that might occasionally appear and would be passed from hand to hand around. I mean, it is obviously true that with the access that very young children even now have to mobile phones and to the internet, that they are accessing porn at a way. And I don't know, how, I don't know how we have, how we respond to that and society is failing to respond. But producing, other parallel manuals to say, well, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. It seems to me this is this is on the face of it not a very good idea. This is not a solution. I, I just feel, Michael, if that is the line that we're going to take, if you're right that anything in porn we must just produce the nice version of so that young children can be aware of it. There are certain things in sex that people can be very into and are perfectly fine for consenting adults to do in the privacy of their own home, but would be you know, quite difficult to explain to a child like, do we really want to have a situation where we're going, oh, well, I mean, we must give the 12-year-olds detailed information on how to properly perform certain BDSM sex acts? Because otherwise, you know, they'll just get into it off the amateur circle and 
you know, where does that end? I think we, at that point, we may want to kind of think to ourselves, is this a bit of a profoundly fucked up situation? Should we talk about the situation in general rather than just trying to prepare people to do this nicely? And that's nothing against people who are into those sorts of things. As I said, perfectly fine between adults. But there's lots of stuff, like highly emotionally charged sex acts that have undertones of violence or dominance or whatever else people are into that, as I said, are fine for adults. Very difficult to explain to a child. I also am just sceptical with the idea that you want to introduce the idea ultimately that that sex and sexualization is remotely fetishistic because I'm not sure that's a great starting point. I think the large majority of people... it isn't. I mean, which the Latin surely should, should, should be. It, it's about affection and connection and relationship. And yes, consent, but a lot more than simply consent. And maybe part of the problem here is that there is a desire to reduce sex ultimately to a question of hygiene and consent. And after that, nothing else. I also I think that's just really a helpful way to look at sex anyway, just even from sort of a quality approach. It's not a great idea. But listen. It's also, I think, astoundingly bureaucratic. There's sort of people must leave with the full knowledge of every available sex act, as opposed to, well, you know, the basics and, you know, go out and see what you like and, you know, have at it. And, you know, find things as you meet different people and you do different things, whether that's, you know, with the same person or whether, whatever, whatever you want to do. As opposed to, you must know everything about this, every variant sex act. Absolutely. Surely life is itself, and in this, as in all areas, a process of discovery. I mean, when you were 17, you didn't, I don't know, do you particularly, do you like single malt scotches, fine scotch? Is that one of your things? I can go with that. A lot of people, you know, when they're 17, you, you give them a very fine 30-year-old single malt scotch, they just out, oh, no, give me my vodka and orange juice. But when they're 35, yeah, we, we grow, we evolve, and we develop. Anyway, Gary, we had, speaking of odd and weird things, we had rather an odd and weird opinion poll published. Okay, with a lot of, a lot of chat and stuff. What do you think? Well, we've had pretty much stasis in the polls for a good few months at this point after Sinn Féin began rising. So it's a very sudden swing against Fine Gael particularly, which kind of makes sense to me. There's a question of, of the accuracy of the poll, obviously, because it's such a large uh, movement. I think the more interesting question than what I think of it, or, or the actual truth of the poll, is how this poll is going to be seen in, well, Fine Gael, Fine Fall, and Sinn Féin, really. Fine Gael are going to start saying things like, this is an outlier poll, it's it's absolutely non-indicative, we'll see when the next one comes out that this is just a total variance. At least that will be said by people who support Leo Varadkar's leadership. And there will be other people who will try and use this for their own political agendas. It's a bad poll for Leo Varadkar by any, I think, metric. They fell, what, seven, eight points? Yeah, uh, which represents basically like a, a 33% drop in uh, the space of a month, which is dramatic. That is below what I would put of like the hardline Fine Gael support in this country. So if that's actually accurate, if they've somehow managed to actually chip away at their own heart, that's... That's not good. That's that's terrible for them. Yeah, okay, a lot of uh, people are saying, "Oh, well, it, it's obviously it's it's an outlier, etc." Because I mean, you've got thirty three percent drop, drop you've a five percent up, eight percent down. This is, I'm I'm always skeptical, Gary, of of the notion of outlier polls. You know, uh, it, I can see that there may be a 
an issue. Why this, presumably they're using the same methodological approach that they always do. This is a face-to-face, -face, not an electronic one. It, I, I mean, it used to be the case, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be the case that there was a belief that face-to-face -face polls were more accurate than, than non-face-to-face polls. Uh, it, there may be a bit of a glitch in it, but I would still say if it shows eight up, five, five up and eight down, that maybe it's not quite that, but there's something going on. Secondly, I don't believe that the core vote, the Fine Gael core vote, is actually that big. Uh, I think it's it's slightly smaller than that, so it, they may not be quite at the core yet. So I also think that we're, we're, have you ever experienced a time in your life when Irish politics has been so confused anyway? I'm perfectly willing to, to concede the possibility, at least the possibility, that this is simply reflective of a really unstable political topography in Irish Irish politics at the moment. You have price inflation. There's concern about interest rates. There's the rental crisis, the housing crisis. There, there's the war in Ukraine. There's the issue about refugees. There's the issue about asylum seekers. There's the, the there are the protests going on. There's also there, there is even there's stuff happening in the north. I don't know politically how much that impacts on us at all. There are this there's there's Brexit and concerns of our nearest neighbours. There's all sorts of things. There's the threat of nuclear war somewhere hanging in the air. So there's so much shit going on, and just the Irish politics having gone from being effectively three, two large parties and a little one, is now just incredibly diverse and divided and viscous. So I, I'm not unwilling to concede that it simply might be just a weird thing. No, I will. It is also on Kerry, I think, isn't it? That the other polls that we've seen have actually been just describing a decline in the Sinn Féin vote from the highest points. Whereas this, I think, is the highest that Sinn Féin ever been in the BNA, the, the Behaviour and Attitudes poll. So that's counter uh, trend in that way, which maybe would make people sceptical. Also, on the face of it, and I know it doesn't really, it doesn't work like this, but it does look like, when you look at the other numbers, you have Labour down on Those social Democrats with no bounce at all when we've seen this big bounce in other places. Ain't two up two, which is good for Ain't two. But basically, everything else is static. And if this swing, this weird swing, which would seem to suggest on the face of it, I mean, not quite, but that you have this movement from Fine Gael voters to Sinn Féin voters, and that, on, that just seems counterintuitive and weird. But again, I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Maybe it's possible. Maybe, maybe these are a bunch of accelerationists, Gary, who want to bring the temple down. B&A does have an interesting difference from the other pollsters, which you, you mentioned. They interview people in in person when they're doing these monthly uh, tracking polls. So at the IT, they also get their polls done in person, but they don't do them on a standard monthly uh, rotation. All the other polls are electronic. So yes, maybe that's picking up something that the others aren't. So maybe there is something to it uh, on that basis. The general movement is, is interesting, though. Like, Fianna Fáil is up one. They're on 21. Green's up one to six. Fine Gael down eight to 15. So your coalition partners are going up, but you're going down, and you're going down massively. There's, and also then there's the description of what people say they are concerned about, which is, you know, the hospitals, uh, you know, healthcare, housing, the kind of things that people give when you ask them in polls what they care about, but not the sort of thing people in Ireland have traditionally voted on if they're not directly impacted by it. So, I mean, lots of people are going to look at that and say, oh, it's the eviction ban ending. That's, that's what did this. But the eviction ban ending actually impacts on a surprisingly small amount of people. 
even if they get evicted immediately. So it's a question of, is that actually the case? Or is it just that, assuming that this trend is real, the Fine Gael are seen as the lead in the coalition and people are worse off than they were, and therefore Fine Gael are getting blamed. Also, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have this general malaise about them, which it was more when Fianna Fáil had the leadership, people focused more on Fianna Fáil because you got more of a chance to see it. Now Fine Gael are in there. They've also got that same sort of, we're not quite sure why we're here uh, air about them. Which is, you know, fair because I'm not sure whether they're there either. Okay. Uh, I did see Leo Varadkar out there the other day saying that we were on the cusp of fixing the housing issue, which is, you know, great because uh, they've only been in power for, what, 13 years? And also, by the way, Gary, they're not on the cusp of fixing the housing issue. They're very, very, very long way. I've really enjoyed seeing, you know... Because they've always been saying it, that these are not issues that we can fix overnight in relation to housing, in relation to pretty much everything they have to deal with. Uh, but they've continued saying we can't fix these problems overnight for 13 years. And now it's getting pretty funny. Yeah, because the night is nearly over. Yeah, there is a little bit of a, um, well, yes, we can't do that. But did you consider doing that a decade ago? Because then we might actually be there. Yeah, we we are yet again, Gary, in the situation where we're in Kerry asking for directions to Killarney and being told, well, if we were going to Killarney, I wouldn't have started from here. I do see I, I, I do see a lot of commentators jumping on Varadkar and Finnegale and talking about his leadership and its failure. And if I was someone in I was about to say if I was someone in that position, I suppose I am someone in that position. Um, my concern there is that you get one poll that's bad and then it goes right back to normal in the next poll. I mean, you're not going to look like a dick because no one is going to remember what you said, but you would think there would still be an element of let's not go too crazy on one poll. Now, this gets shown to be a trend or this continues. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know what Fine would do, though. <laughs> if the problem is Leo, what are they going to do about it? It's sort of the same problem that, that uh, Fianna Fáil had. If Martin is the problem, well, you're not going to get rid of Martin. So, you know, buckle in. I'm not sure what they do about Leo. You can get rid of Martin because there's a sense that Martin has come to the end of his career anyway. I mean, you can get rid of Martin without looking like it's anything just but a kind of a, a natural process. And there are a couple of candidates because people have been talking about Martin going for the last few years. So people have been saying, well, Michal McGrath or Callahan or whoever, you know. Finnegale, it's who else is there besides Coveney? And, and not because I think that Coveney is this stellar, outstanding character that we look at him and think, oh, yeah, he's a thief you can wait him. But rather, at the level of profile, it's just Coveney, I think. is Who else is there? I mean, if, they are, if they're going to dump Leo, for start Coveney, there would be a sense they're going backwards. He's the beat. He's Guy Coveney beat. Or we got that, that beat Coveney, shall we say. And age-wise, if it looks old, it looks stale. The great thing about Fine Gael is we know one thing, absolutely. If there is a leadership heave, a certain amount of party is just going to convince itself that they need to replace him with a woman, which cuts the field down very finely to no one who can do the job. Uh, you have Coveney, you have Harris. God. Oh, Gary, don't, please. And Michael, I just say, if someone needs to knife Radker in the back... Like, I trust Harris to do it more than I would trust Coveney to do it. Can I, I actually, here's one interesting thing about this survey, because I was kind of shit-talking what people say they care about. Yeah. In this poll, 57% 
uh, cited homelessness and lack of local authority housing as one of the three most important issues uh, for them. Do you know what the home ownership rate is in Ireland, Michael? Oh, it's lower than it used to be. We used to be up at the top of Europe. Uh, other places have gone up. We've gone, I'm guessing somewhere around 70%, 75 I'm more 70 than, than 75 but It kind of moves up a bit and there's different ways of measuring it. So even that's not too far off. So yeah, about three quarters of the country. So when you start seeing great things like, oh, the cost of houses is very bad because people can't get houses. Most of those people have houses. They live in houses that are owned by them or their family. Uh, So unlikely to vote on that issue because it doesn't really affect them. But it's the right thing to say, Michael. And that that is the problem with in-person polling as well. People don't want to look like a dick by saying, actually, my concerns are really just my own children and family and anything that affects them. Yeah, but Gary, there's a point. You see, they may own a house, but then their 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 concern on politically may be the fact that they are worried about the capacity of their children to buy houses. They may be concerned about the fact that they have three kids that are in college in Dublin and that they are paying a prince's ransom of rent. Or they're finding they can't get a place for them to stay in Dublin so that the kids are having to commute to college. Or they're living out in Ashburn, or indeed, as people I've known, have not chosen to go to college in Dublin, but rather to go to college in Galway or Limerick or Cork because, well, not Limerick because I think it's almost worse than Limerick, but I don't know. I, I remember seeing the rental numbers in Limerick were dramatically poor, but somewhere else because that was the place that they could actually find somewhere to stay. So it, while they themselves may own a house, it may be that they have concerns for their children and for the future that that the housing problem is not going to be resolved and that their children are going to be worse off. And there is this thing that we have been told throughout the 20th century and the 21st that our children should be better off than us. And therefore, if we are faced with the possibility that that won't be true, that that may give concern, that may drive people on. Yeah, I mean, people have been saying that for years and maybe to an extent it's true, but it doesn't seem to be a, a major component of it. Maybe it is. Also, on the health side, again, I agree with you. Historically, we've always seen that when people are polled on health, I mean, think, there are a couple of things that always struck me about polling on health here. First of all, people always said that they were worried about the health system and that the health system was in crisis, and that was true. But on the other hand, when you polled them about their own personal experience of the healthcare system, the people they tended to have very high numbers saying that they were satisfied, personally satisfied with their experience of the healthcare system. And then when it came to actually voting, even though in polls they said they cared about the healthcare system, when you did exit polling, the number of people who actually had voted because of their concern about the healthcare system, the numbers who actually voted for on that basis were, were very low. But, you know, because things were true in the past doesn't necessarily mean they're always going to be true in the future. It may be a case that now, for example, I'm just throwing it out there, we're now post-COVID. And you know what, Gary, I think not to our surprise, there are all sorts of post-COVID health problems becoming manifest. There, There were failures in treatment across a whole bunch of very serious health areas, which were and not dealt with because of the close down, because the restrictions during COVID. Now that a lot of people are experiencing negative outcomes because they weren't because of what happened in COVID, and you have backlogs and all sorts of things. So maybe the health thing has actually moved up a bit from where it was into a real issue. I don't know. Um, it's worth pointing out that even though we have this terrible healthcare system, 
we have moved up to the top of the table in European uh, life expectancy. So we're doing something right, whether it's the way we live, because we got richer, we have better diets, I don't know. And I also think certain areas of the healthcare system have certainly improved. Technology has improved, certainly. John Crown did a fantastic thing in the, in the treatment of cancer. And he should be recognized for that. And other people have been pushing forward in different areas and improving outcomes across the board. Just, I don't know, this is completely off topic. And you may have not said, so I don't want to be unfair. You, you, may, you may have missed it. You didn't happen to see the figures that came out about life expectancy comparisons between the United States and Europe, did you? Uh, I did, yes. Um, also, the breakdown inside America of... Um yeah, quite quite stark uh, differences. Life expectancy at the, bo- the in the bottom quintile, bottom income income quintile in the United States is dramatically bad. There's something going on in that country which is really not good. <laughs> it's sort of an evergreen statement. Well, yeah, I know, but geez, when you see the numbers, the difference between the life expectancy, always life expectancy, also in Europe, is lower at the in the bottom quintile than in the top quintile of income, but the gap is really dramatic and getting worse. I was reading a really interesting article in The Guardian about life in what is described in it as the poorest congressional district in the United States. It's in East Kentucky, former coal mining land in Appalachia. And I'd always understood that the poorest congressional district in the United States was in New York, but maybe that maybe that, that has changed. But the life expectancy there, jeepers, in comparison, is really, really poor. Anyway, it is what it is. Gary, the sun has come out here, the rain has stopped, and I think that it might be an opportunity for people like me who have to go for a walk, to go for a walk and to let the people back out and enjoy their bank holiday. So I suggest we draw a veil over it and we will join you again next Sunday. All the best. Bye-bye.